So this morning, the title of our sermon is Advent, the Gift of Redemption, Romans 3, 23 through 25. That's Advent, the Gift of Redemption, Romans 3, 23 through 25. Some of you may wonder why I repeat some of these things, because I know some of the brethren take notes, and um, I can have a tendency to talk quickly as I get excited or I'm making a point. So I want to repeat things and try and slow down so the the note takers, which I always was a note taker, and even now I I take notes. So I'm reading a book, I write all over the book. I know that drives uh, Brother Doug um, crazy. He's not into that. We've had some, some, you know, uh, jibes back and forth to each other. Um, we have different ways of studying, and that's all well and good. If, you, if you're not a note-taker, I understand. So, what I want to talk to you about this morning is the connection between Advent, the coming of our Lord, and the idea of a gift. Perhaps you, like me as a child, really look forward to Christmas morning. I don't know all of your backgrounds, and I know some people, the practices were different, and you may have come from a tradition where that was not the thing. But as for me, and I think most of us, Christmas morning is when you would awake and find presents under the Christmas tree uh, for you. Do you remember the anticipation you know, waiting for that. For me, it would begin right after Thanksgiving. I'd get excited about Christmas because in my day, the downtown shopping district would be decorated with Christmas decorations. They'd string them across the street and it was just, it was wonderful. Look, have you ever seen that the Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know how their downtown looked? Well, that's how my little downtown in Temple City looked, although it was not in black and white, it was in color. And I say that because our granddaughter, Lauren, she watched, uh, many years ago, she'd watched this old movie, and you know, a lot of young kids don't watch old movies anymore. And it was in black and white. And she asked Karen, she said, Grandma, was the world black and white when you were young? (laughs) So I just want to assure you that, yeah, it was in color. It wasn't in black and white. But the anticipation then would build to, to, for me to the point where it was almost unbearable on Christmas Eve. And I, I never, ever slept on Christmas Eve. I stayed awake every Christmas Eve. I still have problems sleeping on Christmas Eve. <laughs> you know, I want to I hear. Do I hear, the, do I hear the reindeer hoofs? Do I hear, you know, do I hear Santa coming? So I knew, you know, of course, kids, you have to sleep for Santa to come. Santa doesn't come if you're awake, you know, and looking for him. So then Christmas morning would dawn and those wonderful gifts. And if you shared in that waiting in anticipation, then you have an idea what God's faithful people experienced as they waited for that first advent, the first appearance of our Lord, except there was no date on the calendar that they had to look forward to. The Lord God had promised them that a Messiah would come. And they believed that. 
as faithful people do and as faithful people should. But they did not know if this coming, this advent, this appearance would occur in their lifetime or even their children's lifetime. Now in this, we can see a connection to the second advent, the Lord's return. We look forward to it, but we do not know when it's coming. It may be in our lifetime, may not be. It may be in our children's or our grandchildren. Our gra we don't know. But we faithfully look forward to this. So this heaven-sent gift of our Lord's first appearance would be absolutely wonderful because Isaiah uh, prophesied this. And um, Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, um, at the very beginning of that chapter, he gives a prophecy that the region of Galilee of the Gentiles, which in the day of um, the entrance into the promised land, though that was the area that was allotted to the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali. So later it would be known as Gentile, uh, excuse me, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles because it was primarily, although there were many Jews that lived there, it was primarily populated by non-Jews, by, by Gentiles. And he says, Isaiah says in this prophecy given to him by the Lord that this, this land, this place where it was basically non-Jewish would be transformed from a place of contempt because, of course, the faithful Jews looked at anything non-Jewish as contemptible and less than they, um, but it would be a place that was made glorious. And Isaiah described how this glory would come to Israel. And this is in uh, verse 6 of that chapter, Isaiah 9. Very well known, this verse. Isaiah is told, and he writes this down, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is the promise the faithful people waited for. But notice the prophecy foretells how the Messiah will appear and what he will be called, which reflects what he will do. But as to how and what exactly, this is not defined in the prophecy. All Isaiah can do, all that God has revealed to him, is enough to supply these superlatives pointing to something so grand as to be unimaginable to those who are waiting and watching for him to appear. It's going to be great, but we, they just don't know how great. They don't know exactly how it's going to be great. But they're faithful. They're, they wait. They watch. They look forward to it. And only afterwards can this be realized, can be understood. And that's after he does what he does. And we see this in our main text for this morning, which is Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. So please turn there with me in your, in your Bibles. Romans 3, 23 through 25. I preach ordinarily and usually from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And that's what I'm reading from here. Romans 3, 23 through 25. Paul, writing, says, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Notice, and I'm sure you did, that Paul here speaks of a gift. And gifts, of course, are a way that we express our love for one another. Sure, there may be an occasion where you give a gift because of some sort of obligation, but fulfilling an obligation really is, is not a gift. It's, it's paying a debt. And neither is a gift that we earn really a gift. If we are earning something, those are wages. Think about the joy experience when you give a gift to one you love. You, you want to shower them with gifts don't you? It feels like one is, is not enough to express your love. You want to give them everything they want. And if you're thoughtful about it, you want to give them everything you need. And that explains the pajamas, the socks, and the underwear that my grandmother used to give me. It's not what I wanted, but it's what I needed. And when you got that type of gift, you always knew it, right? Because of the box. You know, those J.C. Penny boxes are kind of skinny. It's like, yeah, well, that's not the train set. I know that. <laughs> that's some underwear. Oh, boy. But I can see now that, I, that she knew that I needed these things, and she wanted to provide them for me. Um, they, they were more needed than the, than the toys I, I actually you know, wanted. And, and that brings me to my first point this morning. Point number one. The first advent brings the greatest gift. The first advent brings the greatest gift. When we learn the story of Jesus' birth on that very first Christmas, we learn about the visit of the Magi, or the wise men. They came from the east. What does it mean, the east? Well, the Bible, the, the Bible's, the center of the Bible story is always where? Jerusalem, Right? So it's east of Jerusalem. They're most likely, the Magi, are astrologer priests. They're very learned men. And they're from Babylon or, or Persia, that area in general. In other words, these, these are pagan scholars. These are not Jews. And from what we know, what we see in the text, which is all we really know about these men, they're not necessarily followers of the Lord God, Yahweh. But they've been there in the east watching the heavens. That's what Magi do. And they see a star arise, a special star. And this star portends to them, it tells them the birth of someone very remarkable is occurring. A great king is how they interpret this. So they set out on this journey of discovery and we read about this in Matthew chapter two of his gospel. And they come to Jerusalem and when they get to Jerusalem they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So the Magi's question emphasizes the word born. And the gra grammatical construction of that 
makes it clear that they ask about the location of the child who has legitimate claim to Israel's throne by virtue of his birth. Whoa, this greatly troubles and upsets King Herod, who is, we know is sometimes called Herod the Great. This is how he was named by uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian. And as Matthew tells us, besides King Herod, Matthew says it troubled all Jerusalem with him, with King Herod. So everybody is bothered by this. Because the Magi's question clearly insinuates that Herod's an illegitimate king. He sits on the throne falsely. He's an usurper to the throne of David. Which is true. It's not only true of him, it's true of many kings, many rulers through history up to the present day. You read history and you see that kings are disposed of, yes, deposed, and others take the throne that are not of what once was the royal line. The royal line then becomes something else, and you have German uh, royalty now ruling, um, ruled in England, and so on and so forth. The English ruled over France. And um, this is just the course of sinful human history. Herod comes from a line that has been placed on the throne of Judea by the Roman Empire. He's not even a Jew by birth, but an Idumeum, which they come from the land of Edom to the south of Judea. And his father converted to Judaism to make the family claim to David's throne appear more legitimate that would just kind of like calm everybody down so they could be in charge of everything. Herod was an exceptionally paranoid man about his kingship. He murdered many of his family members, including his most beloved wife. He had, he had ten, so she was his favorite out of the ten, and he murdered her. You imagine the other nine, what their life must have been like. <laughs> and he murdered many of his sons. In fact, back in Rome, Caesar Augustus, who made sure Herod was on the throne and sent his military to back him up and to keep him in power, Caesar Augustus says of Herod, he quips, it would be safer to be Herod's pig, his hoist, than his son, hoist. He's making a play on words here. You live longer as a pig owned by Herod than you would as a son of Herod. So we go on in Matthew's story, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> After listening to the king, this is the Magi, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So what the Magi rightly recognize as divine guidance, this, this star leading them, literally fills them with exceedingly great joy. They know 
that the Lord God is involved in this. And then when they find the mother and the child, they fall down and worship him, the, the baby. So there's something more going on here than just looking for the king of the Jews. A human child, even one born the king of the Jews, would, would that be a cause for worship by the Magi? I, I, I don't think so. I think it was just that. No, they would certainly honor him, but worship him. No, they wouldn't. And really, would the, the, the king of the Jews born whose presence they're now in, would that be of such a great significance to men from a mighty empire? One of the mightiest empires on the earth in this little, you know, kind of off the beaten track, backwoods kind of place that, yeah, there's a lot of trade routes that go through it, but it's, it's not a power to be reckoned with. They're under the subjection and the rule of Rome. So, obviously... I think that adds to this idea there's something more going on here. And these gifts they, they, that, that they bring, they're used, that they honor the new king with, are typically associated with royal, royalty. And Matthew, in his gospel, has not yet introduced the theme of Jesus' death. So it's questionable that the gift of myrrh, as we, uh, which, as m- many of you know, is, is a spice used in embalming, it's questionable whether that is really foretelling that death, at least in Matthew's Gospels. Although we can't help but see that foretelling, because we know the story, right? But imagine reading the story or hearing it for the first time. You wouldn't pick up on that, because Matthew isn't introducing that theme yet. Rather, what Matthew is telling us, all three gifts here honor the child as the true king. Gold is associated with royalty. Both frankincense and myrrh, which are fragrant spices and perfumes, were used for adoration and worship. And so there's these three gifts from the Magi, and that's where we get that tradition that there were three Magi. If you're familiar with the story, if you've read your Bible, you know that the text never gives us the number of the magi that are there. So three gifts, we make it three magi, and it fits better on our uh, tabletop nativity scene. You can't have a whole caravan, you know, on the side table. So this idea of them visiting, this is not something that is unknown. We We find evidence of this in secular histories, that these wise men, these magi from the east, visited royalty. Um, but they did not worship the royalty they visited. But what is most significant here is the background of this visit, this background that comes from Scripture itself. So the Magi were apparently aware of an oracle, an oracle given long ago by Balaam, son of uh, Beor, in his final oracle. And we find this in Numbers chapter 24. looking at particularly verse 17 here in Numbers 24. And the oracle is this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. 
This has been called one of the most remarkable prophecies of the Hebrew Bible. And it was interpreted for centuries before the birth of Christ as heralding the great messianic king and his kingdom to come. It wasn't something that after the birth of Christ was looked back at. It was between the time of the oracle and the time of Christ. Faithful people understood this to mean to talk about their Messiah that was coming. What makes this so remarkable, really think about it, is it is uttered by a pagan divination expert who was an enemy of Israel. Balaam was not a Jew. He was not a faithful Jew. He was a pagan. And he was used and employed and took the job to curse Israel. So not someone that we would say is a favorable voice um, for the people uh, of God. And one theologian, Ronald B. Allen, in his commentary on, on Numbers, he says this about this prophecy that this prophecy should come from one who was unworthy makes the prophecy all the more dramatic and startling. Brethren, friends, you see how God works in his prophecy here? How he uses someone that we would not expect to be used? He doesn't use a mighty man of God, a faithful man of God. He uses the enemy of Israel to give this prophecy about the hope of Israel. Now, to human logic, this is counterintuitive. These things don't go together. But this is what we find time and time again in God's word. And this is what points to the fact that this is God-breathed, that this is God-inspired that we have given to us. So given that, how would these Eastern pagan scholars know of this prophecy in scripture. Well, they come from a land in which the Jews were held in captivity for some 70 years, right? We know of the Babylonian captivity. Judea, taken in three successive waves up to Babylon. And the Magi are possibly connected to what in the book of Daniel are called the Chaldeans, in Babylon, which were the court astrologers and magicians. And in the book of Daniel, what do we read about these Chaldeans? That they trained young Judean captives, such as Daniel and his friends, to serve the king in the way the Chaldeans served the king. Now, it seems to me that the captives who were learning from the Chaldeans also taught something to the Chaldeans. It seems that they taught them about their prophecy, about their hope, kind of along the lines of, well, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're your captives now, but things are going to change. And let me tell you, and you need to get, you know, um, this God we worship is the one true God, and all these gods you worship, buddy, they're leading you down the wrong path. So apparently this sunk in, right? And it had been passed down through the generations of scholars between the time of Daniel and the time of our Lord's birth. <clears throat> we come to our second point this morning. 
Redemption is actually many gifts. Redemption is actually many gifts. Your heavenly Father showers his beloved with gifts. Like we might have experienced as children or as we may do now to those we love. Christmas mornings with so many gifts under the tree that you can't even get close to it. And sometimes one gift brings another. Gifts that are needed to make other gifts useful. <clears throat> when our kids were young, rollerblades were a big thing, right? You remember rollerblades. You buy your kids rollerblades. You just can't give them rollerblades, right? You've got to give them a helmet. And you've got to give them elbow protectors and wrist protectors and knee protectors. And it might as well get the car ready for a trip to the ER. Um, other things, too, like getting, uh, you know, you get a, a baseball glove when, when, you're, when you're little, and you're probably going to get a ball and a bat. Or you get this thing that we used to call a record player. And if you didn't have any records to go with the record player, you weren't, listen, you weren't able to listen to music. So you'd get some records to go with the record player, or cassettes to go with the cassette player, or eight-track tapes to go into the car, which, you know, used to be the thing. Don't need any of that now. But you get the idea, what I'm saying, that, 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 that there, sometimes one gift needs more. And this idea can be seen in our main text, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to re be received by faith. So all sinners, all sinners are prohibited from the presence of God on the pain of death while in their natural state as sinners, which includes all of us at some point in time. And as sinners, we hate anything that must come before our sin. Our desires come first in our natural state. What we want comes first. If we're honest, if we examine ourselves, we know that to be true. And sinners, us at one time, in their natural state, if they could be in God's presence, what would they do? They would shout, crucify him and try to murder God. We've seen this in history. We know that is what occurs because that's what did occur. However, as a sinner entering into God's presence, the divine presence is to enter a death zone. Like the 8,000ers, those are the 14 mountain peaks on earth that are over 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet above which human life cannot survive for very long without oxygen. Or like the exclusion zone around the Chernobyl nuclear plant, over a thousand square miles of heavily contaminated earth where staying for very long is, threatens your life by its radioactivity. But earthly Death zones do not always 
cause death. We know that because there's thrill seekers who will go to these places. There are men and women who have climbed these peaks without oxygen to prove a point. I don't really know what the point is, but anyway, they, they've done that. Um, there's people, and you can find them on YouTube, that go into the exclusion zone, that avoid the patrols and the barriers and whatnot. Um, again, I don't know why, but they do. There's, some of us have you know, this, this uh, thrill-seeking, almost like a death-seeking thing um, going on. And sometimes the death, if it's going to occur, is, is delayed. But a sinner in the presence of the living God will certainly die. No doubt about it. We are told that. Our fallen, sinful nature excludes us from God's glory. So God must justify us by his grace, which is a gift in order to receive the gift of redemption. Redemption through Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord and Savior, which takes place by the Lord Jesus shedding his blood for us on the cross, another unmerited gift, which we must receive by faith. And faith must also be gifted to us because as sinners, we are completely and utterly faithless other than to ourselves and to our sins. All of mankind, Jew and Gentile, has been under this curse of sin, a curse that natural man is not even really aware of apart from God's intervention. If God just created the world and turned from it, the disinterested watchmaker, as he's called in some theories, and just left the world, he's, he's wound up the clock he's made, which is the world, and sets it down on his workbench and walks away because he's no longer interested in it. Some theory of how the world operates, then we would have no knowledge of our sin and our need for redemption. We would be you know, perfectly happy to sin against each other until the day we die, take what we want from, from other people and just live for ourselves. But, but God intervenes so we know that this is not how it should be. And this curse, as we know from the Bible, was brought to us in the garden. Eve brought this curse upon us. And the reminder of the curse, we are told in Genesis 3.16, is found in childbirth. Paul talks to Timothy about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 15, he tells Timothy, Timothy undoubtedly knows, Timothy is a is a pastor, pastoring a church, but Paul's making a point here. And often when you're making a point, it's not just to the person you're making the point to, it's for others. And he's inspired to write this. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So she's saved through childbearing. This refers to Eve and, as, and, and Eve as a type to all of her descendants who are amongst God's elect. That there's something in this childbearing. Well, it's not, as, as some may 
may try to say. It does not mean that, you know, if you have a baby as a woman that you are then saved, that that is the process of your regeneration and redemption. No, absolutely not. Paul's pointing back at the garden with the fact that God said this is part of the result of the sin. But the child who will come will crush the head of the serpent. Paul explains this further when he writes to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians 4, verse 4. Galatians 4, 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul's talking about this need for the Savior to be born of woman. So this is how God acted this out in history. And we go to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And this is how it played out. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Galilee, remember what we talked about a bit ago? Isaiah chapter 9, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. Something going on in this region. So Gabriel goes there, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, who who tells humans that he, that he meets that he stands in the presence of Almighty God. This is a higher-ranking angel that's sent on this mission. Not some low-ranking guy in the back ranks. This is the guy from the throne room. He tells Mary that she's been favored by God. This, this is, of course, in Greek. Um, and it's been tra- it was translated long ago into Latin for the Vulgate Bible by, by Jerome. And um, the Latin, this Latin Bible was used for, for many years in the church and is still a basis for um, translation in the Roman Catholic Church. And it was translated from the Latin into English as... Mary is full of grace. Not, that's not from the Greek. That's from the Latin. So you can see there's, there's been some blurring going on. And this phrase has subsequently been misinterpreted by the Roman Catholic Church to mean that Mary possessed grace and was a bestower of grace rather than a receiver of grace from God making her into something which she was not, which she is not. Gabriel also tells Mary, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. 
these statements here, you put them together and we find a prophecy about this, again, in Isaiah, which explains the meaning behind this phrase of being favored by God. It's in Isaiah chapter 43, especially the, the fourth verse. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, fear not for I am with you. So Isaiah 43, 4 is providing us a beautiful interpretation of the meaning of the message God sent to Mary and the message is I love you as he loves all of his people. God's favor or grace towards the undeserving is love. Mary, beloved by God, is also a sinner in need of redemption. We read in Luke, the first chapter of Luke, verse 45. Mary goes to visit her older cousin, well, relative, um, probably a cousin, Elizabeth. And if you know the story, Elizabeth is bearing a baby. And Elizabeth is a mature woman beyond childbearing years, but the Lord has, has, has blessed her with this child who is John the Baptist. Mary comes into her presence and both Elizabeth and her baby sense somehow they're given discernment, spiritual discernment, that this is not a normal birth that's going on. And what I want to point out to you is a one phrase here that Elizabeth says to Mary and about Mary. She says, blessed is she who believed. Believed what? The good news announced to her by Gabriel. Mary, like every fallen human being, must hear and believe the good news. Mary had no good news to bring on her own accord. She cannot bestow redemption. She can only receive redemption. Mary understood this, and we see this in her song called the Magnificat, which comes from the first line where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It, it, it refers to the, the magnifying. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So Mary acknowledges that she is in need of a savior. She's not a co-redemptrix as the Roman Catholic Church has elevated her to be. They've turned this, this young maiden who was blessed to bear our Lord, they've turned her into a pagan goddess is what they've done. This is abhorrent. This is what theologically is called an abomination. She says, going on in verses 48 through 50, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So Mary acknowledges that her condition is like that of everyone else. And yes, she is blessed. She's blessed to serve the Lord in this role. And it's amazing when we think of it, that, that she is a sinner like us. 
There was no immaculate conception involved with Mary. Mary was a normal human being. Immaculate conception, don't confuse that with the virgin birth. Those are two separate things. The immaculate conception is this concoction the Roman Catholic Church had to come up with to explain how Mary was not a sinner, that she was born like Jesus, that there was no normal human uh, reproductive stuff involved in it, which, you know, is, is... very questionable in their theology. So anyway, realize that that is just not so. In verse 49, she says, she sings. Imagine she's singing this. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary is saying it's the Lord God who is doing this. It's not her. She's not singing about herself. It is the Lord who is the merciful one, not her. And the superstitions among those who follow Roman Catholic theology that Mary is the grace, the one full of grace, the merciful one who you go to because apparently the Son of God and the Father are too busy or too angry or whatever that you have to go to the human mother of our Lord is again an abomination. It is denigrating and desecrating the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, realize that. Not that I enjoy talking harshly, in a sense, about other religions, but it is our duty as pastors to protect the word of God as it goes forth and to explain it correctly and accurately and warn those that we have been given the wonderful opportunity to shepherd to warn them from these dangers. Just like a chart on a sailing ship warns the captain, warns the pilot of the rocks and shoals that aren't hidden, so the word of God warns us of the rocks and shoals that may be hidden to us. And we need to consult that chart book, our Bible. This brings us to our last point as we wrap up here. Point three, the greatest gift comes at the greatest price. The greatest gift comes at the greatest price. What was our price? It was this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul tells us our price. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Son leaves his heavenly estate and becomes man, a perfect man. And yet, not only with the intention to be the only perfect, the only righteous person on earth, not done as just to model to us, this is what you should have been like, this is what you could have been like, but no, you guys messed it up. No. It's not that. Would that be love? No, that's really not love. That may be, some of us may have experienced relationships with that sort of sick love, but God does not have sick love for us. He has pure, divine love, the righteous love, the perfect love. And as we've seen in Gabriel's message, what is done with the Son coming is done out of this immense love, which means He becomes like us, even to the point of assuming the guilt and the penalty for our sins. 
He doesn't leave us alone in the wreckage of earth in this, that's been spoiled by, by our sin. He doesn't just model perfection, as I said, as a reminder of what we can never have on our own. That would be taunting us. The Lord God, our triune God, does not taunt us. And this, this gift was planned ages ago, as, 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 as the Bible tells us, before the world, before the ages began. The Father agreed to turn his just wrath for our sin upon the Son. The Son agreed to become sin for us and receive the Father's wrath in our place. And the Spirit agreed to transform us so that we could do what we could not do as sinners, which is believe in faith and enter into the relationship with the Lord God and desire to live no longer in sin, but in righteousness and obedience to our Lord. That's what the Spirit does for us. Do not let anyone cheapen this gift. Do not listen to deconstructionists. Like the pearl of great price, this parable the Lord tells us about in, in Matthew's Gospel. A man sells everything he has to buy this, in, this pearl that is, that is incomparable. Well, this is about the kingdom of heaven. The Lord's explaining how priceless the kingdom of heaven is. But there are many evil people, and I'm departing from the parable here and giving you an interpretation upon that and upon the rest of, of what I've been talking about this morning. There are many evil people who would say that, that they would tell you that pearl is worthless. It's costume jewelry. And try to steal it from you. Or try to sell you something else that's junk. There was once a hugely popular evangelical preacher by the name of Rob Bell. I don't know if any of you remember him. When I was in ministry in another denomination, I had to deal with other men in ministry who thought that this guy just, you know, finally, someone is, is talking in human terms, using logic and reason, and we can step away from superstition. But this Rob Bell denigrated the Bible story of the virgin birth. It's not all he denigrated, but that's, this is my point this morning. He claimed that Christians do not have to believe such fables as the virgin birth. Well, you do have to believe it, okay? That he's wrong. Don't let anyone sell you on that. Otherwise, number one, you are outside historical orthodox Christianity. The church has believed this from its very inception. 2,000 plus years, this has been the belief in the church other than heretical sects that have branched off. And number two, if you don't believe this, then there is no basis for Jesus as a savior. Then you have no savior, you're on your own. You have to save yourself. Brothers, sisters, I know you know this, but friends, you cannot save yourself. Try as you might, you will fall short. God's word clearly warns us of this. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he cannot be our savior. He cannot atone for our sins because apart from being the God-man, meaning fully God as the second person in the Trinity, the Son, and fully man, born of an entirely human mother who is Mary, a fallen sinful mother, even though obviously she was a very nice woman. I mean, she was, would have been just a joy to be around. Well, my grandmothers were joys to be around. Your grandmas and your moms and so on 
we're wonderful women, are wonderful women to be around, but still they're in a state of sin. We've got, we've got to realize that. That just because someone leads an outwardly moral life and is really can be an example as we should be to our children, to our family, we are still sinners. We are still in need of a sinner, excuse me, of a savior as sinners. That we are not saved, cannot be saved by our works. We see this in Luke 2, 31 through 33, when Gabriel tells Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there shall be no end. To that, Mary asks a very astute question. This is a bold young lady. She's talking to Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the living God. And she asks him, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel gives her the answer. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. If it wasn't a virgin birth, that could not be. The child could not be called holy, the son of God. If the child had been fathered by a human father, as Jewish opponents of Christ would later claim in their writings, it's in the, it's in the Babylonian Talmud that denies this, that says that Mary slept around and got made pregnant by a Roman soldier. They have to destroy the, 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 the doctrine of the virgin birth. This is not an unimportant thing, brothers and sisters. Then, if that was true, he'd only be human, right? A human can't atone for our sins any more than he can atone for his sins. If he was not born of a woman, Mary, he would be solely divine and would not be able to be a substitutionary means of atonement for our sins and could not reverse the curse in Genesis 3.16, that would be, we'd be stuck, stuck in our sins. There's no way out. I don't know about you guys. I think about this and I think I just could never imagine, I could never make this up. Only God, only God can do this. Only God can plan this. This is just beyond me. And I think beyond any, any human being. And likewise, as far as, you know, don't listen to the, the deconstructionists. Do not let superstitious, man-centered beliefs misguide you when it comes to the advent, when it comes to other things. For example, the pretender to the pretended throne of Peter, known to the world as Francis, in the gilded palace of Rome, has announced this, this grand thing, that he will issue a plenary indulgence, that is the forgiveness of all sins. All you have to do is pray to a nativity scene. But there are catches. It's, you thought it would be easy. It's, it's, it's really not all that easy. It's fairly easy. But it's only good between certain dates. There's an expiration. There's a sunset clause to it where it doesn't work. 
And it can only happen in certain places. You can only do it in cer certain places. You can do it wherever you want, but you're not going to get the forgiveness of all sins. You have to be in a place that's run by a certain group of men, men called the Franciscans. If you go to their place between these dates, you're set up. Otherwise, you're just out of luck. There's no indulgence for you then. This is a special kind of evil that tricks the gullible into believing they are saved from the fires of hell while guiding them to that place of damnation. This is an abomination. The Lord God has instructed us, his people, on how he is to be worshipped. We cannot add to that. We cannot say, well, this is a good idea. You know, the, this fella in Rome come up with this scheme and it sounds good. It's a lot easier than this other stuff. And we have to do something, right? We just can't sit back and just accept in faith that Jesus died for us. We need to work also. Well, brothers, sisters, friends, think of the book of Leviticus. Do not add strange fire to what God has decreed. The sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu added something to the worship of God beyond what God had proscribed, what God had said. Now, it, you read the story, and it's like, well, it's kind of, it's not, doesn't seem that bad. It's not what God wanted. It's not what God commanded. It was in violation of his command on how he was to be worshipped. Understand this, the Lord God is the final arbitrator on how we are to worship him. Not what seems good to us. That's why you'll never see an interpretive dance up here performed by your elders because that's not prescribed. You've been in churches where stuff like nonsense like that happens. Well, these two lads, these two men, the son of Aaron, the chief high priest, the fire of God consumed them. And that is what will happen at some point in actual history to those who add strange fire to the worship of God. There's no way around it. It's not that I want that to happen. It's what God tells us will happen. Friends, realize that Almighty God is offering this gift to you now. Brothers and sisters, let us be thankful for this gift, which our Lord's first advent has brought us. Let us be focused on that. Let us be focused on him as we should always be. But this time of year just is a little bit special, we must, we must admit. It helps us to focus more. Let's focus rightly. Join me in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the gift you have given us, for the many gifts that you give us, for the gifts you give us continually, Father, for the, for the gift of life, for, for waking up each morning, for breathing, for being able to be with other believers, to be with family members, to be with friends, even those that aren't believers, Father, just the joy in life, the joy in your world, Father. And we often focus on the negative stuff. We often focus on how bad things are and how bad things can look. But Father, help us to focus on your joy, to focus on our Lord as we prepare to celebrate his coming into the world. Father, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for your word. We give thanks for your church 
that belongs to you. It's, it, we know it's not ours, it's yours. That, that this church, all churches, the church universal is the true church, is the bride of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We give thanks that we are part of that. May we do what we do to keep ourselves, the bride, spotless and pure. We respect our groom. We love our groom as we know he loves us. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they go forth. I pray for your brethren, my brethren, your beloved. I pray for those who are maybe hearing this for the first time, those that are, are friends who are inquiring, Father. I, I pray that their hearts, their minds be opened. Father, bless the rest of this day. Bless our services to come. Protect us and guide us in this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.